Howdy, friends. This is Jeffrey Rickman. I have a show called Plain Spoken that you're watching right now, and I hope you enjoy it. I talk about a lot of things on this channel for people who like Christianity and Wesleyanism, Methodism in particular. So I've uh, recently done an interview with Angela Pleasance, at, uh, who's in, in ministry and leadership in the GMC. I've talked to Bishop Jones. I've, I've tried to kind of understand who are the different minds that are impacting the future of the GMC. And uh, today I'm talking to a good mind. Uh, I only recently became uh, aware of him. His name is uh, Reverend David Donnan, and uh, he's in the South Georgia uh, Conference of the Global Methodist Church. He's, he's thinking his mind is, how can we set up the organization in a way that uh, glorifies God first, of course, but also that would be of benefit to us in the Global Methodist Church? He, uh, he reached out to me a couple weeks ago. He thinks it's important, and I agree, otherwise I wouldn't have him on, to talk about the episcopacy, the role of bishops. And a lot of people got burned by this in the United Methodist Church. A lot of people are inclined to just throw throw the whole institution away. But David and I are of the mind that that, that would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so uh, David's going to make the case as to what kind of structure he thinks makes sense, how, how it is that bishops can and should uh, use their, their influence and authority in the church that would be different from the UMC. So I'm going to ask you to, to, to have patience with David and me as we kind of suss this out and, and talk about it. Don't let your eyes glaze over, because this actually does have a pretty big impact on, on our future in the GMC. And I'd like to think tribes outside of the UMC can also learn from us and, and watch us, uh, and maybe even offer some helpful guidance to us as, as we decide this at our convening conference next year. So um, what's going to happen is I, I'll give you a brief intro. I, I spent time this morning researching David. Um, here's how I've understood him to be online, and then he's going to fill out more of his story so you just know how to take his voice, and then we'll talk about the particulars. So here's what I learned about him. He sent me a brief bio, but I, I like mine better. So this is Reverend David Wesley Donnan. He's a global Methodist clergy serving the South Georgia Annual Conference. Uh, he has a mind for administration, serving on his conference's Finance Administration Pension and Benefits Committee. He's an elder at Glenville Methodist Church, he ministers to the GMC broadly through his website, daviddonnan.com. You can see that in the show notes to go to it, where he has links to articles and podcasts that he has published. He has had some really good guests on there. He also regularly participates in Methodist-centered discussion on X, Twitter, uh, where his handle is at David Donnan. David earned a public relations degree from Georgia Southern. He got his MDiv from Asbury Theological Seminary in 2017, and he's currently a doctor doctoral student there. He has served two Methodist churches since then. He is married to Brandy, a rock star kindergarten teacher with two young children. David's really into football, but the thing I like about him is he posts about Jesus a lot more than football. He enjoys professional friendships with Keith Boyette, his president pro tempore Jay Hansen, and many others across our connection. He recently engaged in a back and forth with Chris Ritter on funding models for annual conferences involving the tithes of active clergy. But today, here's here, he's here to talk about uh, how it is that the GMC will potentially utilize bishops in its new polity, which will be determined next year at our convening conference. So that's my setup. Uh, I'm going to bring David on screen now. David, I'm so glad you joined me this morning. This is what David Donnan looks like. David Donnan, good morning. How are you feeling, brother? Hey, y'all. Uh, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for having me on. I'm blown away by the volume of content that you create and just uh, your heart to um, get your ideas out there. I appreciate it. 
and I appreciate you having me on. I do want to say I've had lunch with Keith Boyette and I've talked to him a couple other times. I don't know if he knows who I am, so I don't know if he would call me friend, but uh, I have a lot of respect for him and all our leadership in the Global Methodist Church. Well, I saw a, a, a pretty chummy picture of you and him together, so I'd be surprised if he'd forgotten who you are already, but... <laughs> You know, you're you're one of the few. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have worked with uh, Mr. Boyette over the years, but uh, you you clearly have uh, space in your mind for knowing who the different people are and what the different moving pieces are. So it's clear that that um, your voice is rightfully part of the equation. So last week, you and I were on a, a call with other content creators around Methodism. Um, actually, we've been on two of those now, um, rightly. So uh, I'm sure there are ways in which you and I are quite different, and that's okay. We make room for people to be different from us, but also there's a, a shared concern for um, having a robust conversation, creating a robust movement in the Global Methodist Church, and your voice has been really helpful from what I can see. I, I regret that I wasn't able to read the full back and forth between you and Ritter. I don't know if we'll talk about that today, but um, let's let's come back to your bio, just kind of where you come from. I'm particularly interested in how you became a Methodist, and then why it is that that you care about the uh, the issue before us today. So set that up however you like. I guess uh, the answer is I became a Methodist by the grace of God. I guess that's the most Wesleyan answer I can think of. Mm. Um, I grew up in uh, United Methodist Church in South Georgia in Cordill, and I went through confirmation. And in high school, I was somebody who was wrapped up in high school football. Uh, we were a very good football team. We uh, played in three state championships. We won two. Actually, there's my high school jersey in the background. I try to try to make sure it's in the, as much video content as mm -hmm. I can. And my <laughs> whole identity was wrapped up in, in playing football. I had a big truck because I was a big football player. Mm. And I lifted weights. I went to all the meetings, and I would even write the, the name of the team we were playing that Friday. I'd write it at the top of my paper in school, so I, my mind would be focused on that. Wow. You were and, really um, – what position did you play? I played on the offensive line. I started, okay. I think I have the school record of consecutive starts. I started 49 high school football games. And I, I think I have the record because I don't think any team continually went so deep in the playoffs as us. And then I know all my buddies who started and were better than me, they actually uh, got injured and missed games. And mm -hmm. so I think I have the record for most consecutive starts. Um, wow. But. When, between my sophomore and junior year, there were some kids from the University of Georgia Wesley Foundation who came to do our high school ministry for the week, and I was interested in hanging out with some high school kids, and I was blown away that they were in college, or I was in high school, they were in college, and I was just blown away that they loved Jesus, they didn't party, and I heard the presentation of the gospel um, at the end of the week that I just felt the weight of my sin and such a, a deep conviction um, I don't know if that was the second warming of my heart or when I officially got saved since I'd been through confirmation and had considered everything, mm -hmm. but something changed in my life that night. And um, I've been passionate about um, Wesley Foundations and campus ministry and the Methodist movement ever since then. Mm. Uh, I went to Georgia Southern and um, did several internships and ministries and Knew I wanted to do youth ministry, but didn't know I wanted to go into pastoral ministry. And then our senior pastor had heart bypass, and the associate pastor moved up to the big services. And the services he was doing, um, I had the opportunity to preach in those. And it was really the first time, and in, instead of working with youth, where I'm like, hey, don't do this, or I've seen some kids do that, that doesn't work out. I was like, okay, I really need you, God, to come through for me. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and to speak through me because these people have so much more depth, so much more life experience. And it was, you know, looking back on it, not surprisingly, God came through, but I was just blown away um, by the love that the older congregation gave to me with my um, speaking communication skills. And I really started to discern a call into pastoral ministry through that. I served um, several different Methodist churches, almost two decades in, in doing Methodist ministry. I've served uh, two-point charges. I've served station churches. And now I'm just um, pleased to be serving the Glenville Methodist Church, an amazing group of um, Bible-believing um, traditional Christians in a growing church, in a growing area. And I've just, I feel like uh, I've hit the jackpot here. It's a, a really great church to be at. So I got part of your bio wrong. I had that you, you'd only served two churches, but it sounds like you've served uh, quite a, a few more than that. Um, so some of that began as a student in a student ministry role, and then mm -hmm. as a candidate in the United Methodist Church as you were going through your MDiv program, and then out of MDiv, or out of, out of Asbury, have you had two main appointments with two churches? So I actually was a local pastor in 2012 when I started, and okay. I was in seminary at that time. I had taken a, a semester to at Gordon-Conwell, and then mm -hmm. I transferred into Asbury um, to finish up. And so I was serving, um, it was considered three-quarters time while I was in seminary, mm -hmm. and then I loved those churches. Um, I needed something full-time when I finished, and uh, it worked out where they had a full-time appointment. And everywhere I've served, I'm just like, I'm really looking forward to the global Methodist churches. Uh, uh, they're at least uh, words that they're saying they're going to keep preachers longer because everywhere I've been, I've just been so blessed to say I could be here forever. These are amazing people and amazing mm -hmm. churches. So mm -hmm. um, I've served, let's see, two full-time appointments and then three other churches part-time. And there was a full-time on staff as a youth pastor. So that's the short version of my bio. I did, I did youth ministry for one summer and I don't, I don't miss it. But um, we we had some good times. It's just a lot of drama. I I well, youth ministry is really tough, especially in um the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. You were really quickly told you're not a youth pastor. You are a youth director. Pastor is a title you can't use, and um, even writing like applications for um seminary, they're like you can't call yourself a youth pastor. They're gonna like come down on you. And so it was very fascinating. Um, and I look forward to more um. um collegiality in the global Methodist church and uh, knowing that we're all uh, working towards the same goal. Yeah, there's something that I, I hope doesn't pass over from the UMC, which is kind of this class mentality uh, around ordained ministry. And, um, you know, if you, if you don't guard, well, and we might talk about this some today, but if you don't, if you don't guard the standards of something, then that means there are going to be no standards. So is there a way to, to, to guard some standards around what ministry is and is not, or what, what pastoral ministry is and is not. Yeah, I kind of doubt we'll talk about that today. We are going to talk about the episcopacy. So um, I, I already kind of set up the larger conversation in the way that I did. You know what we're coming out of the in the United Methodist Church. How I've kind of sensed the the sentiments around the episcopacy right now in the GMC with a lot of the grassroots people. Um, how would you like to set up the conversation that we're going to have today? I think looking back at our. United Methodist history, and I'm extremely grateful for the United Methodist Church and how it nurtured me and made me who I am. Um, I think you can go back to 1968 and 1972 and see that there were some decisions made in those first two conferences that um, put everyone on a course where there was going to be um, deep division. So if we are going to say, how can we uh, 
move forward the best we can and set up this new movement of Methodism, one of the things where we need to say is what are some errors that we can try to avoid? And I think one of the most important issues that need to be figured out at the first general conference um, is going to be the role of the bishop. And so I'm very curious of how that's going to go. I'm somebody like I have my ideas and I'm very aware. These are ideas. These, this is not David Wesley Donnan. These are my ideas I'm putting out. Please attack them. Give me pushback and feedback. But I just want to give a voice to uh, one idea about what the role of Bishop uh, could be Mm -hmm. and should be. And I look forward to voices from across the U S but really we're a global body too. And I'm just um, excited for the future and want input from everybody. And so I'm just trying to put some ideas out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to do some legislative work or maybe even go as a delegate to general conference. But I just, I mainly feel a call to just put my ideas out there. And I'm so grateful for your channel and the gift of writing and blogging and video where we can put our ideas out there. Right. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Just a hick in Northeastern Oklahoma can get a pretty big audience if, uh, you don't screw it up too bad. Uh, so, but but help me and the current viewers. A lot of people that were in the UMC and now in the GMC haven't had a lot of personal contact with bishops. They haven't seen bishops be particularly useful. They've seen bishops play a very unhelpful role in the United Methodist Church. So whenever you say that one of the primary, perhaps, you know, I I, I saw the rough draft for a Firebrand article that, that you've submitted, hopefully going to get published where you say that this is, if not one of the most, the most important thing for us to address at next year's convening conference. Just what's the basic, you know, why? Explain that. Why is it so important to get bishops right? I think, so So let me tell you about the South Georgia Conference. We have um, absorbed the North Georgia area. Traditionally, in the United Methodist Church, South Georgia and North Georgia have been separated over the past couple of decades. And so now we have um, our North Georgia friends are a part of the South Georgia Conference for the moment. And we'll see how long that lasts. And uh, they have their disaffiliations coming up. Right. And so we want to be praying for them. Um, but if you talk to them like, half the churches who are leaving, they don't know what they want to do because they've had such a a horrible experience with bishops. Mm -hmm. And there are so many places, um, so many stories all over um, the United States, especially of just, well, I mean, your story of being, um, you know, your interactions with your bishop. And Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about one of our friends, uh, Daniel Hickson, his video that he published this week, which was just I was like, okay, I want to see what this was. And I didn't realize what a gut punch it was that he had to experience too as a young father. And just the the power dynamics that were at play of where you could be moved at any moment, you could be um, pulled out of your church at any moment. Uh, there are people who are rightfully so very cautious about even entering a system that has a bishop. So I think we need to make sure that we get the role of bishop right. Again, I'm not saying I have the right idea, but I have a idea that I want to put out there. And um, I guess, do you want to go ahead and do some of the slides I sent you? Yeah, um, I'm wondering. Okay, so the primary text, let's let's start with the Bible first off. The primary okay. text that people use to justify, because a lot of people will say, let's just get rid of bishops. Why do we need bishops? Mm-hmm. So I, I think the, the, the primary argument for why we should have bishops is it's recommended by Scripture. Is that is that mm-hmm. a... Is that the primary argument that you would make and why it is that bishops are needed, or is it more of like an administrative look? You have to have certain people filling this role. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I don't even know if I would go to the scripture there as like the office of bishop um, 
is required. I would say church administration is required. Um, there, there's a really good book by Tom Tumlin ad ministry, um, where he just talks about how we have a responsibility, no matter what structure is, uh, um, of, of, to run the church. And I think about acts and the, uh, apostles, um, saying, Hey, we shouldn't wait on tables. Not that the serving the um, widows was a bad thing, but they no. just said, we've got to be organized in a way that we can do ministry. Mm-hmm. And so even before saying, um, let's talk about Bishop. I think just having an overall idea of what's the healthiest organization that we can have to be efficient for the kingdom. Um, so I guess that doesn't answer your question necessarily about no, Bishop, but I'm more of... It, it does. I mean, you're, you're, you have an administrative mind, and so yeah. it, you would be of the mind that it is not sufficient. Well, if you don't have bishops, then what you have is a congregational system where all you have is mm-hmm. deacons and elders and you're local church oriented. There isn't somebody standing above it all with the eagle eye view. So whether you wouldn't feel strongly about if it's called bishops or super, general superintendents, your your primary concern is we need people filling this connectional role. If we don't have that, um, we'll be in trouble, or we'll just be limited to a congregational polity. Yes, yeah, I would say yes. I think that's a, an accurate description. I think there needs to be a, a lead administrator um, who acts ethically and teaches the Wesleyan theology, and I think bishops the the best idea we have for that word. Very good. So what I want to do. I want to go ahead and introduce the biblical language about bishops, it, acknowledging that that's not necessarily your pri- your primary concern. I think a lot of people listening to this, if they're going to be invested in this conversation, they need a biblical basis for it. And some mm-hmm. people really haven't reminded themselves lately of what we learn about bishops in the New Testament, in particular 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 2, and I'll, I'll try and remember to overlay this whenever I publish this. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. I know you you care a lot about that teaching part especially. Um, Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then that it goes on to deacons from there. Um yeah. Okay. So that's that's the primary instruction in the Bible. We have three offices men- mentioned explicitly. That one bishop is episkopos, the elder is presbyteros, and deacon is diakonos. 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 Yeah. So um, this is the office that we're talking about here. It, it definitely has a, a notion that we need. Uh, episkopos is rightly seen as overseer. That's usually how it's it's uh, translated. And so it's talking about their moral character and faith and how long they need to be a part of. Uh, the faith before they can lead, and what kind of household they need to have. All these things, I think, are actually of paramount importance. One of the things that I'm hoping gets brought, I mean, I might even introduce my own legislation. I I would love for there to be some scrutiny of each candidate with these areas in particular. And then the filthy lucre part is something I'm concerned about as well. I've been scandalized for a long time that in the United Methodist Church, bishops make upper-class income and I've just been of the mind that if we're going to follow a, a, a peasant itinerant 
that that we don't necessarily want our bishops to be poor, but we certainly don't want them to be rich, and we don't want anyone who's in the office uh, wanting status and uh, higher income. We need people who are doing it out of love of Christ Jesus. So I don't know if there's any serious way to to keep them middle class, but I sure would love to have that at least be a conversation. So that's me just kind of planting my seeds for my conversation. We're going to spend the rest of the time. We're going to go ahead and look at what you brought today. You have you have some uh, graphics for us to consult. Well, before we go to the graphics, okay. let me ask you: Do you have any idea of what the uh, mechanism could be to like? Uh, work on salaries to make them lower could it be like an average of the top five minus 10 percent or something to to make it a less attractive salary wise i think i think that's a great question but i always am curious about how what would that look like i've i've thought of two different scenarios one would be okay if they are assigned to an annual conference just averaging out all of the salaries of the full-time active clergy and they just Mm -hmm. get the average of that the other one would be um, coming up with um, just a level of uh, w- when you look at the poverty level and upper income level and then the cost of living where they are, be able to generate that cost of living income. Because um, when you look at conferences, say, in Africa or the Philippines, I mean, right now, African bishops, even though they make less than American bishops, still make so much money. They have like compounds, you know, they're, they're so—so mm-hmm. so I just think— uh, figuring out whatever a solid middle class income is in the region that they serve and live, and then you know comp their housing and their their transit and transport. I, I think that's a realistic. I think both of those would be realistic, but it depends on how we figure out how many bishops there are, if they correspond to an area, or if they're just general superintendents in the entire church. So I'd be interested in, and I'm not very smart. Those are just things that I've thought of, but I would imagine there's probably a good three or four realistic ways to generate that number. Um, so. Uh- Teddy Ray had an article. This is our first time, maybe maybe not the only time we mentioned Teddy Ray. Mm-hmm. He had written an article a while back about what if all pre- preachers' calories were capped at whatever the conference minimum salary was, doubling that, and you couldn't make above that. Now, I don't know of any conference that has minimum salary yet in the Global Methodist Church, or right. if they will, yeah. but that was just another idea. I don't know if it's good or bad, but just... Uh, want to give a Teddy Ray shout out whenever I can. Teddy Ray is a, a good voice that we lost, but I'm glad he's still speaking, at least to you. Has he spoken to anybody else since he got on the lawyer track? No, I mean, he's tweeted at me. I've only talked to him the one time I had him on my podcast. Yeah. So you can go. I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised he talked to you because I thought he completely extricated himself from the conversation, but you, you got him back in. Maybe he's like this. He's this mystery character that uh, <laughs> we need to get back. He floats in and out. All right, so are you ready to to show off some of these slides that you created? Yeah, so is what I wanted to do was just go back to uh, um, Jeffrey. You made me look bad. You went back to the scriptures. I just went back to the transitional book of doctrine and discipline mm-hmm. and said, uh, "Here's what uh, here's what I think was envisioned in the book of doctrine and discipline." I went out and shared with um, several churches about joining the Global Methodist Church, mm-hmm. and one of the things that um, they want to know is what would be the role of bishops. So I said, well, here's what we have. Here's our document that is um, authoritative right now and will be authoritative um, through general conference. Um, so this is what it says about the role of the bishop. And so um, if you look on page 67, so the transitional leadership council, which is the uh, most authoritative body we have right now, um, it says the transitional leadership council may appoint a president pro tempore who is an elder given a responsibility for supervisory oversight 
of a geographical area mm-hmm. until a bishop is assigned to oversee that area. So this office of president pro tem was imagined and it went on to describe such a president pro tem shall have authority to make and fix appointments, which is traditionally the, what a bishop does uh, to make and fix the appointments of clergy and their area of oversight. And the president pro tem shall have all the authority of a bishop during their appointment. So the idea seemed to be that, hey, we're not going to have a bishop right away, but we are going to have this office of president pro tem and they will act as bishops. And so uh, I've got a slide going to the next slide. It says uh, the envision structure. So this is my understanding. This is not this graphic is not in the book of doctrine and discipline. This is my understanding that our envision structure was to have president pro tems and then have a supervising elder or presiding elder um, that acted in a similar role to a district superintendent, but would be part-time. So the way I understand it, if you're a provisional annual conference, you have a president pro tem um, and that's the structure that we have right now, or that was the structure that was envisioned because we didn't have bishops. Now Mm -hmm. we have been incredibly blessed by having two active bishops, um, Bishop Webb and Bishop Jones have come over and you can go on to that next slide that says current structure. Mm-hmm. And so they actually came. And so since they were bishops in the United Methodist Church and transferred in as bishops to the Global Methodist Church, um, we have given them that title. There also have been some bishops who have retired who um, have a type of bishop emeritus status, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we have two active bishops. And so this summer, Bishop Jones has been acting as a general superintendent. He is um, above all the president pro tems, he is accountable to the transitional leadership council right now. So mm-hmm. is Bishop Webb and uh, Bishop Jones is amazing. Bishop Webb's done an incredible job. Mm-hmm. This summer, Bishop Jones came, put his hands on my head and uh, ordained me. Mm-hmm. And then I got a, a really uh, amazing serendipitous uh um, thing happened. He came and preached at my church too the Sunday after I was ordained. Oh, cool! It was really funny. I just reached out to him, like like I reached out to you, Jeffrey. I'm not afraid to you know stick my head out there and say, hey, would y'all consider doing this? Um, so I was just like, hey, you're going to be in the town. I'm about an hour away from uh, where you're going to be. Would you be interested in coming to preach? And he said, nobody's asked me yet. So at conference, everybody was saying, where are you preaching this Sunday? There's some large churches. Even our president pro Tim's church was right there. And they said, uh, you're going to Glenville? Why are you going to Glenville? And so it was awesome to be ordained, have family come down to St. Simon's at Epworth by the sea, and then to have Bishop Jones come and preach. It was only the second time that we know of a bishop's preached in our church. And then put on top of that, this isn't just a bishop over one annual conference. This is a uh, acting general superintendent who has half of the whole world of global Methodism um, to come to our church was just a huge blessing. Um, Bishop Jones was so cool. Uh, Miss Mary Lou was even cooler. Yeah, uh, my course. wife enjoyed getting to talk to her. I enjoyed talking to her mm-hmm. and they were just absolutely phenomenal. And I was doing a sermon series. We were going through the Lord's prayer and Bishop Jones didn't come and say, well, I'm going to do my stump speech. I do it on my church. He said, I want to preach in your series and came and preached without notes. Um, we had lunch with them afterwards. We had a churchwide luncheon. And so just super cool, this uh, current structure that we have, and it has just um, been um, so beneficial in this uh, transitional time. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys have done an amazing job and I wish we could, uh, 
clone them and have you know a thousand bishop jones i mean there are some ethical things about cloning uh -huh. i guess we yeah could i saw that into, but. i saw you, you that's not a, a thought you just now came up with this is something that you've <laughs> you've considered more than once can we clone yes. these guys no 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 we can't do that yes. uh but yeah yes. they really have uh poured themselves out for this nascent state in the life of the gmc so that's really been an incredible thing to watch because you know most most People once they get to that stage where they could realistically think about retirement, they're they're thinking about phoning it in and kind of being lame ducks and lifting up other people. But these guys have really stepped up and poured themselves out. It's quite impressive. And so they've modeled this general superintendent above the president pro tem. And I've heard Bishop Jones say this. Um, Matt O'Reilly had a really good interview with him where he was like, "Hey, I think we need to just go ahead and have you know." six to 10 more general superintendents and, mm -hmm. and keep this additional layer that we have. Mm -hmm. And so for me, as much as this has been an awesome um, structure in the transitional time, I'm somebody who is in the favor of let's keep the bureaucracy as flat as we can and low as we can. So that final slide I sent you, Jeffrey, mm -hmm. is the proposed structure. I say these president pro tems, we need to make that office into residential bishops. I think residential bishops are going to be the uh, most effective going forward. I also think that um, we're going to need more Episcopal leadership in each annual conference, especially because right now there is no Masters of Divinity requirement mm -hmm. for uh, to become an elder in the Global Methodist Church. Now, I think we can talk about the pros and cons, but I'm, I will be surprised if that comes back as a requirement, uh, which I think we need to have uh, local residential bishops to help um, to help train up clergy. I think uh, our president pro tem, uh, Reverend Jay Hansen, has done an amazing job doing this of saying, hey, uh, we just want to pour into y'all. And so we've studied together. We pray together. And, you know, he knows all of his preachers. Mm -hmm. Now, Bishop Jones might remember who I am because um you know, I fed him, he came to our church and everything, but mm -hmm. I mean, the ability to know your clergy, um, other than when just they're in really bad trouble, um, I think is something that we don't want to take for granted and that we're going to need that, um, hands-on Episcopal leadership. I also think if you have an annual conference around 120 churches, if we were to have conferences that size and you had a bishop that size, you get your bishop to preach in your church every two to three years. Mm -hmm. I tell churches when I go and speak to them about joining the Global Methodist Church, I say really clearly that you have the option to leave whenever you want to. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to always say, is this going to cause people to leave or to want to stay? Now, there are going to be people who leave the Global Methodist Church because they, they say, okay, we, we don't necessarily agree with the theology. Maybe we're more Reformed than Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. We need to say, thank you for your partnership for the time. Um, bless you on your way. Like, go do good things for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to make churches leave because they are frustrated. Why are we paying uh, general superintendents that our delegate who went to conference told us they saw uh, versus I feel like you say, OK, I know I'm getting value because I'm having this um, local bishop come around uh, two to three times a year or, I, you know, he's preaching at, or working a walk to Emmaus on a weekend or he's preaching at something that our women's group went to. I think there's just so much value um, to be added to having this local residential bishop. And I don't want to lose that model. Um, I, and also like, I think 
what does it mean to be a bishop? For the most part, to me, most of my life, I thought, oh, it's a punishment to be a bishop. Like you do nothing but administration and discipline. And I think that's important. But I think if I think everybody, whether you want general superintendents or local residential bishops, everybody wants the bishop to be a teacher and a defender of the faith. Mm -hmm. And I think you can do that so much more effective if, you know, you know, your preachers, you're in their churches preaching dynamite Wesleyan sermons um, every year, every two to three years. And people say, I feel good about this connection I'm in mm -hmm. versus having a more bureaucratic additional layer above this president pro tem office. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of simplicity and plainness. So I like this idea of just deacons, elders and, and bishops and nothing in between. As I've read the selections of, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you I've read through the whole transitional book of doctrines and discipline, but I remember whenever I first heard the title President Pro Tempore, I went through and looked at every reference to President Pro Tempore in the, the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. You can just search for the, the term in the, the, the PDF. And it seemed pretty self-evident to me that it was not imagined that this would be a permanent setup, but in this in this liminal period between just getting people together and then actually having a convening conference where we can set up election of bishops, we just had to have overseers for a time that didn't necessarily can carry that ordained status, but were given that authority in the life of the church. So I I guess I'd be I'd be interested in and surprised by people who crafted the the book of doctrines and discipline actually saying, no, we imagine presidents pro tempore actually being a, a permanent feature. I can imagine them being used irregularly whenever a bishop doesn't work out, and it's it's time that you have to have somebody in that role. But um, I, I have imagined that we are going to have bishops. I mean, a lot of people in in leadership have been very clear. Yes, we understand there's a congregational impulse, and we can acknowledge that, but we can't give in to that. We have to have bishops to recognizably be a biblical church and not fall to pray to a lot of these phenomena that we see in in congregationalism. But how it is those bishops are going to operate is far from clear at this time. I think mm -hmm. within the United Methodist Church, the the College of Bishops, the Council of Bishops, operated as kind of like a, an, an aristocracy, you know, a ruling class that wasn't necessarily— and on paper they were they reported to the grassroots United Methodists, but— in actuality, that's there was all kinds of separation between them and people on the ground, and you really did get the sense in the United Methodist Church that the grassroots uh, dynamics of uh, finance and administration were aimed upwards. That 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 the orientation of the denomination was upwards towards these bureaucrats and uh, aristocrats at the top, and that there wasn't a, a benefit coming back down to the grassroots. So one of the things I I expect you and I would agree on is. Whatever role the bishops serve, it should be felt and, and observable on the local, lo, local church level for every churches that are a part of that, every church that is a part of that connection. You, you would agree with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also like if we say the general superintendent was the way to go, mm -hmm. like we can add that, you know, 10 years down the road. But I think if we start out with general superintendents and then we make president pro tems into, you know, a conference superintendent or something, mm -hmm. like I think that's going to be really hard to get rid of. Um, and especially as several of them, I mean, maybe even the majority of them are full-time positions now. Um, I know we have our, our president pro tems full-time and we have a full-time assistant. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or at least two full-time people now. So it's, um, and they, and they definitely deserve to be paid for the work they're doing, but I don't, I don't want us to, you know, just start adding all the layers right away. I, I want to, I don't see the need for a general superintendency and an additional layer between them. So when you're, when you're saying between them, you mean a general super general superintendency and an episcopacy? So, so here's what I think is going to happen if we keep general superintendents. The president pro tems, a lot of them are full time. If they're general superintendents, and again, I haven't heard, it's not for me to argue for the general superintendents, but this is my understanding is you'll have general superintendents and then you will have a conference superintendent that will be that president pro tem office. Mm. And then you'll have the presiding elders or supervising elders that will report to that person. When you're talking and about a general superintendent, you're thinking the general superintendent is for all intents and purposes a bishop, right? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. That's the thing I wasn't getting clear on because we have these different names, but the names correspond to different functions and titles. Your concern yes. is not we call them a bishop. The The concern that you have is we have people filling this role of oversight. But then there are general – a general superintendent would be responsible for the whole connection of the whole denomination, and they share each other's space – Whereas uh, the United Methodist Church, they had that, but also each bishop had a regional area, that, that a, a conference. Well, it didn't correspond with—they would give them an Episcopal area that often corresponded mm -hmm. with annual conferences. I never understood the fullness of how that worked, and I don't care to because I'm gone now. But <laughs> within the GMC, do we have these different layers of overseers— um, presiding elders that are responsible for, uh, you know, uh, essentially a district, uh, and then um, maybe a president pro tempore that's responsible for a conference, and then a general superintendent slash bishop that's responsible for the whole kit and caboodle, or maybe a larger regional area. That's what we're going to have to figure out next year. Are you, are you familiar with anyone who is working on a, a proposed uh, scenario to adopt in 24. My understanding is there's a committee uh, working on the role of the bishop, and I don't know if that means that they'll propose legislation mm -hmm. or if they're going to develop ideas and, and have a subcommittee that writes legislation. I'm not really exactly sure other than uh, I heard that there's a committee that's working on it. Okay. A and you're on Episcopacy. You're not on it. I'm not on it. We're just talking no. about the work that this committee is doing, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, so I that, mean, honestly, I think that's needed. Uh, I, I think committees have a way of getting insular and, and uh, it's good to see how people on the outside think of things whenever they don't know about all the conversations that have taken place behind closed doors. Well, and if I'm, if I was on the committee, I probably would not have the freedom to go out and share my views. So I'm grateful to oh, right. have the opportunity um, to do that. I, I have, when I've spoken to people on the committee, I say, Hey, is this going to be a committee that just like, puts the lid on it? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to say, we want really a free market of ideas. And, um, you know, they say, I hope, I hope we have a free market of ideas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, we'll, we'll see. Usually when I talk to a lady or other clergy, especially in my area, um, they are like, yeah, we're not against the local residential bishop. We're against bad residential bishops. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, so, so my idea is let's keep the bureaucracy as flat as possible. Mm -hmm. But there are still going to be some really big questions about how will we do elections? How do we do accountability? Yeah. And that's going to be whether we have general superintendents who are above several annual conferences or if we have local residential bishops. There's going to be tons of questions no matter which model we decide on. Well, and that's so I've talked with uh, Beth Caulfield about accountability because she got burned by 
unaccountable leadership in, in her conference. I've talked with Bishop Jones about it directly whenever he came and sat down with me here. And it, it's, it's my understanding that there's really no one advocating for a simpler, cheaper, faster process of dismissing disorderly walkers. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that the only scenarios we are entertaining are uh, very labor and money intensive, marked by many stages of, of checks and balances, which I know that they uh, imagine will protect people, but I've, I've only ever experienced administrative bureaucratic power taking advantage of things like that at mm-hmm. the expense of people. I'm all about transparency and just putting it all out in the open and then um, handling out it, it, it quickly and transparently. And then if, if they have been in bad faith, dismiss them. If, if they've been falsely accused, reinstate them. But this long drawn out thing, for instance, Bishop Carcano's trial in, in the United Methodist Church, complete waste of people's time and money, uh, caused so much damage to that annual conference, has really jeopardized her leadership, created a huge stink around her. If we don't get that right in the GMC, then I don't think it matters if we get the job description of, of bishops right they can easily get derailed by uh, another moribund and sclerotic system that we create. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the hope is that we do not have guaranteed appointments. So in theory, you know, you're in breach of contract if you throw out a bishop or throw out an elder who has given this um, lifetime guarantee until they're 72 Mm -hmm. um, to have a minimum salary appointment. And so there's a much harder process. But now it's like, hey, we do not, guarantee anything so we can take your church uh, really at any point and you don't have any recourse and so i think just having i think it's great that the churches have the ability to do that to leave whenever they want to and i think that the structure is good to say hey we have the ability to say it's not working out like you're not called to ministry we're not going to do a church trial like why don't you find something else and the church has the freedom to say we disagree with you taking our preacher's credential we're going to be an independent wesleyan church now Mm -hmm. and um, find some other type of connection. So I think it it helps everybody kind of figure out um, clear what they want to do and who they want to be. So if I if I had to put it in my own words, what I think I just heard you say it was the fact that they're that exiting the denomination is easier, and that there are no guarantees that you're entitled to place in the denomination. Both of these things are kind of a pressure release valve, so that it doesn't mm-hmm. have to escalate to that place of church trial, all kinds of procedure and money mm-hmm. being spent, um, which I, I would be inclined to agree with you if there wasn't also this thing of ego and entitlement in in, mm-hmm. in the human nature. So that's the part that I, I worry about is, you know, we can create the best systems, but if they do not fit with human nature— um, then it's it's a big waste, you know. So uh, let, let's talk about the role and function of bishop. I already talked about the biblical basis for bishops and the kind of character that they're supposed to have. Um, that's my primary concern is that these people are actually holy, you know, that they <laughs> that they run holy households, that they have the right relationship with money, with alcohol, with with their their emotions. Um, what I hear your concern primarily being is we need people at the top who have the bird's eye view and can simultaneously give a personal touch in in each local context. Uh, I've also heard you spell out how important you think it is for them to be engaged in the training of clergy um, and knowing all their clergy. So how much does do your passions for the office of bishop overlap with the biblical instructions there? 
Um, I noticed the reason I bring that up is in the United Methodist Church, there was an indifference to the personal moral lives of bishops. Um, it was almost like an afterthought that Bishop Carcano had her daughter living out of wedlock with a man in church-owned property, you know, which to mm-hmm. me is just automatically exclusive. I mean, <laughs> you can't be a Christian leader. You're facilitating your child living out of wedlock with it. That's crazy, you know. Um, we've had a, a bishop continue to actively serve when their household fell apart, when their spouse came out as trans transgender. You know, I say we, that's in the United Methodist Church. But uh, I think there's been a in the United Methodist Church, it wasn't just with bishops, but also with clergy, uh, intentionally mm-hmm. welcoming clergy in who had very disordered households at home, very dysfunctional personal yeah. lives. But hey, they're fulfilling their job well. It's kind of like a career mentality. Mm-hmm. So where, where, how do you navigate all that in the GMC when we're looking at ordained clergy and especially bishops? Yeah, well, that that's the thing. Like, I don't think I care about it for bishops because you got to be an elder first. Mm-hmm. Like, and you shouldn't be an elder if you can't reach those descriptions that you read from Timothy of like, uh, you know, the ordered household and holiness. Like, I want our elders to begin with to to be at those standards. Um, so let's just start there, and then once you know, hopefully they get to a bishop one day and are mm-hmm. in Episcopal leadership, we can feel good because we know we've held elders accountable, and people aren't going to get through like that. Um, it is. It's it's tough to have a system where there is this careerism and there is this ladder, and that's what I think is good. Whether we have general superintendents or local residential bishops, is all of them are saying we don't want to move people. We want you to stay. As a matter of fact, uh, when Bishop Jones was here preaching between our services, he came in here and uh, we hung out, and I said, "What advice do you have?" And he said, "Stay at this church as long as you can. Don't mm. ever move." Mm. And so. I think just trying to say, you know, our elders are not going to be so career focused. And I think um, this is my second firebrand article. If they actually let me publish my first one, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> my second, my second idea is Wesleyan frugality is the way forward Yeah. Um, for, for United Methodist, global Methodist, um, free method. Like, I think we've all got to go back to earn all you can save all you can give all you can. Okay. Because you don't need to take out a $60,000 MDiv degree. And then you are at the pressure of, I've got to pay off these loans back. Like I've got to be looking at, okay, this preacher's retiring at this big church. So this church up under him um, and the ladder might come open. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to follow him or her in this church so that I can pay off my loans and be able to retire one day. Mm -hmm. I think saying, Hey, just be where you are. Like uh, take a Dave Ramsey course. Let's talk about going into debt early. Um, And you know, I guess I would say bring back the MDiv if you can guarantee a pastor never goes into debt to get it. Like to me, I think we've really got to go back to those basics of saying it's your responsibility now. Um, we have somewhat of a pension system now. It's a little different. It's a um, match into a 401k style retirement, which I think is a much better way to go because you can um, take it with you. It's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to access your funds early on. So I think mm-hmm. we've done a great job with that. But I really think we need to say, you don't need, you need to put yourself in a position where you're not saying I need to move um, to meet my basic needs of paying off this debt, or I just want a really good career to keep moving up. The careerism thing, I, I appreciate you giving the word to that because that is exactly what happened in the United Methodist Church with guaranteed appointments and this MDiv, you know, this, uh, I've already in the GMC, I've felt a lot of pressure from the academic world uh, and this kind of like I, I associate higher education with an upper class mentality, and um, I, I would like to divorce it from that. I don't think it's always been the case in Methodism that those two were synonymous, but it's very much felt to me as though 
there's still kind of this um, high-minded, you know, unless you've gone through and done this kind of study, you really are quite limited in, in what you have to offer the church. And that also has, you know, that, that has very real financial implications for how you look at your role as a minister. Well, if I'm trying to get the highest income possible to pay off all this debt that I've got, I'm going to comport myself very differently than if I'm just trying to preach Christ and Him crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yes. Scott McCracken, who's still a United Methodist pastor, yes. um, he was an Episcopal candidate a few years ago, and I remember reading some of his blog, and he he had talked about how local pastors um, needed to be more valued, and he said it was in the 1940s, 1950s, post-World War II, mm-hmm. everybody's town, you know, your lawyer had a degree, your doctor had a degree, so you wanted your preacher to have a degree, mm-hmm. and so there was this uh, exploding pressure, and also at the time, the um, mainline seminaries were in the process of becoming more and more liberal. And so we can kind of see how, the, I mean, you could, you know, maybe 200 years from now when they're teaching church history, they'll say this was one of the problems mm-hmm. um, of this secular uh, progressiveness that uh, creeped into the church. I'm going to put a couple wild ideas to you and see what you react. I enjoy you. You can do this because you and you and I've seen you do this with Chris. One is, um, in order to get rid of this careerism and this classism that, that overlaps between, you know, big church and small church, just average out all of the—just uh, redistribute all of the, the income so that whoever is an elder in any annual conference makes the same whether you're working in a podunk town or the middle of a city. Do you like it, or, or would that be bad? So I, I think uh, that's a, a fine idea if we're just talking about, you know, redistributing wealth. I think also, though, the libertarian side of me says, you know, um, we can't we've got to be very careful what we mandate on churches. And so I think theological guardrails mm-hmm. and, and um, walls are very important for us to do. But, you know, is it what what an independent church say we're paying our preacher X and we're going to join this denomination, and we have to lower their salary to Y um, so that they can be equally or pay into a fund, but our preacher's going to get paid a lot less. I think that would be, you would get a lot of pushback from churches on that. Well, you'd you'd have large church pastors make less than they otherwise would, and you'd have small mm-hmm. church pastors make more than they otherwise would mm-hmm. uh, if, if you mm-hmm. averaged it all out. And so I mm-hmm. think it would, you would, the only big church pastors you would get would be ones that aren't after wealth because they're not going to see any more. You know, uh, and then the well, and you might not ever get anybody wanting to go to a big church. Like I, I play the game of like, mm-hmm. what would somebody have to pay me to like, you know, quadruple my membership and like lead a staff that's much bigger and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if there's any amount of money that would. Like, I like visiting people. I feel like I don't always get to do enough of that now. I like teaching. Well, it, and- but if the only reason somebody's making new disciples is because they're getting paid more to do it, I would rather they just not be global. Ma- I mean, I, I would hate to think that a disciple yeah. is made because some guy wanted a bigger paycheck, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I say guy yeah. or some gal uh, yeah, deserved it's, filthy— it's, Okay, gender-inclusive language for sure. So we, yeah. we can circle back around to it. The other one I really—I'm interested in your feedback on— I actually got this idea from Teddy Ray because he talked about the history of itinerancy in in America. You're proposing a flatter scheme. Bishops, uh, uh, elders, deacons, maybe some interstitial tissue, but not much. I want to go back to this system that we had in the beginning where there are located pastors, uh, ordained elders in place for long periods of time, but also 
itinerant pastors working alongside of them. I've had this crazy idea for like eight idea for eight years where we just have young men and women who they ride motorcycles around circuits and they go to each church and lead revivals. And then that's just a way for them to to get to know the system and be in connection with the bishop and like it, hate it. It would be a whole other uh, rung of ordained ministry, but it would also be something funded by that that shared pool of money. That I think so. So here's what I would do. I mm-hmm. would I would make any a, a twist on it. Do it. That's what church planners should be. They should be like the Apostle Paul, mm. where nobody plants churches like this. You plant a church. You're the founder. You stay there ten or twelve years. There's a handoff. Usually it doesn't go well when there's a handoff. Right, yeah. That's kind of the model for evangelical church plants. What if you had somebody who moved around and they said, you know, I'm going to stay here for a year or two, and then I'm turning this church over to y'all, and y'all have to run it. I mm. um, did church plants like that. Now I think you you had a good conversation of this and like, how do we not make a church growth a God or, right, uh, yeah. um, or an idol? Yeah. And so uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure of, oh, we've got to reach this certain percent. Mm-hmm. And so how are we going to do that? And I think we have to be very wary of just going after numbers. Um, but I do think something like that would be more biblical of having somebody who goes around and starts the churches and goes back around and um, continues to minister to them. I think that would be a, a neat way to do that. David, you're exactly who I hoped you would be. This is the first time we've really talked. We'd, we'd emailed back and forth a little bit. Uh, I love people who can think outside of the box, who uh, respond non-defensively to uh, pushback and and ideas. I imagine you and I are probably going to talk more over the coming years if I don't uh, ruin it somehow. But so far, I, I love having these conversations. I love that you're a part of the conversation. Um, I, I've got a. I, I, I would talk to you another hour if I could, but we're going to count uh, cut it off for today, friends. If you want to follow up. Uh, with David, I, I think probably the best way is uh, with Twitter. Go ahead and pray for him because even if he's doing well, uh, the the best thing you can do for somebody is pray for them and their ministry. Pray for the Global Methodist Church as they continue to have these conversations, some behind closed doors, some out in the open like us, and just pray that these conversations result in um, and a denomination that actually pleases God and, and works as it's intended. So, uh, David, we're about to close things off. I just want to thank you and then welcome any closing thoughts for people who spent time with us. Yeah, that, well, congratulations on making it all the way to the end of the conversation. I'm proud of you for doing that. And I'm just super grateful to have conversation partners. And um, I would love to go back and read the comments on this and hear why this is a good idea or a bad idea or send me an email or, or tweet or Jeffrey a tweet. Like, I just want to get the conversation moving with ideas. I think the worst thing we can do is think that we don't have value uh, to add to this conversation. And I would just love for you to uh, prayerfully consider what's the best way forward and let's uh, seek God in it. Yes. Good final words. And yeah, that's a good, good word in particular. Y'all, I know we're going to have people who have thoughts and you want to share them. Please Remember that you're a Christian when you write them. I've just found so many people that are defensive. You don't need to do that. Just write your thoughts. Acknowledge a Christian brother just trying to help the connection. And then, yeah, put it put it out there and invite your friends. Send this to somebody else who's a good thinker, and, and let's have a good public discourse, even if it doesn't go our way. It's just good to talk about meaningful things. And then, you know, as you know, I have designs on actually growing this. Uh, I, I think there are a number of good conversations to have and people to lift up. I don't have all the time in the world to do it, and I'm doing a lot of this myself. If you'd like to help me hire somebody on and get some of the stuff that would help me generate more stuff, faster stuff, better stuff, then go over to plainspoken.locals.com, and that's where you can become a supporter and give regularly or one-time gift. Every little bit seriously helps, and I never spend it on myself. So, all right, we're going to close this conversation off. David, thank you so much for spending time with me. God bless you. God bless 
the, the folks that spent time with us, and I'll see you later.